You know, I have really enjoyed going on a tour of heaven with all of you at Bolingbrook, 95th, Hobson, Wheaton. I'm kind of sad that this is the last week of our series called A Glimpse of Heaven. I think a little review is in order. The, the books of Revelation 21 and 22, the chapters of 21, 22, last books, last chapters of the Bible, they have been our study, and we have learned a lot. First week one was the environment of heaven. We discover we don't walk on clouds. We are going to be on a new earth and living in a city called the New Jerusalem. And then week two was the king of heaven. Remember, we discovered that the best part of heaven is our friendship with God, relating to him visibly, tangibly, face-to-face, every day. And then week three was the tree of heaven. Do you remember discovering that this tree, the tree of life, will be in heaven, and the curse will be gone, and all of our problems removed, that God's life and healing that the tree brings will be readily accessible every moment of every day. Last week was the city of heaven. And how community, relationships with each other will bring us so much joy in their perfected state. And the last week here is called the activity of heaven. So many of you have asked me, Jeff, are you going to talk about what we do? What will we do in heaven? I don't want to be bored. Are you going to be bored? Let's find out. I want to start by uh, showing you a gift that was given to me by a Maasai tribe chief in Kenya. I was on a, uh, a missions trip to that African country when this chief gave me what is like an African throwing stick. This is a weapon that they use. I mean, he showed me. It's unbelievable how they whip this baby with just extreme velocity and can fight lions, you know, with this weapon. I was presented this gift in a church service in the Maasai area of Kenya. And it's a church service I will never forget. I was so excited to go and experience this. You know, we're in an area where people are living with huts made of mud, mud floors, grass roofs. I go, this is going to be so different. I was warned, Jeff, we, uh, we worship the Lord a little longer than you Americans do. I'm like, hey, I'm a pastor. I, long church service, I'm all over that. How long? And they said, how about five hours? It was every minute of five hours. You have nothing to complain about. Let me just say that right now, okay? Well, here's where the challenge came in. First of all, uh, first two hours ate it up. Third hour is where it started to get difficult because I couldn't understand a word that they're saying. It's in a different language. The heat was oppressive, obviously no air conditioning, and I am jet-lagged. And so I started struggling to fall asleep. Now, to some of you, I can tell you do that all the time. So we're uh, familiar territory. And to make matters worse, I'm on the stage. They insisted because I'm a pastor that I sit up on stage. So I am biting, I'm chewing on the inside of my mouth, you know, trying to keep myself awake, pinching my leg, going, Jeff, because I'm sitting here looking at everybody going, (laughs) you know, it was horrible. I mean, I struggled for an hour with this. Finally, I think I caught a few winks and a few of the prayers, and that helped. And then I was doing a little better, but now the hunger kicked in. You know, they just blew right through lunch without any thought or recognition, which I would never do. And uh, I, I had 
anticipated that problem and kept a bag of peanuts in my pocket. But sitting on stage with every eye on me, you know, it was very difficult to, you know, kind of, you know, and then as, you know, transitions between the second sermon and the third sermon, you know, I, you know, pulled some out of the bag and did, you know, one of these and... I had successfully transferred a good bunch into my mouth, and I was really slowly chewing and enjoying them when they called me to the podium. (laughs) It was that moment that I was presented this gift, and I started to go back when I realized, no, they wanted me to say something. They were looking for a sermon, a spontaneous... I've discovered that in missions trips. As a pastor, you better be ready because they say, hey, give us the word, preach to us. And so I went up, and as I started to preach, a peanut got lodged deep in my throat, and I choked. So I... Finally, someone brought me water, and I'm like, drinking water. <laughs> it was so embarrassing as I stood up there trying to, you know, get myself ready to preach. Well, I eventually did, and it was a joy preaching through a translator to those Kenyans. Five-hour church service, what do you think? Maybe we should consider that, huh? This gets at that fear that some have, that heaven will be an unending worship service. Is that biblical? Is that true? I will tell you, as I've studied Scripture, it is accurate that all we will do in heaven is worship, 24-7, always only worshiping God. So the activity of heaven could be simplified to one word, worship. Before you panic, you should know that we have an unusually narrow understanding of worship usually, that is worship in a service with song. And though that is a glorious way to worship the Lord, it is not the only way to worship the Lord. And what we're about to find out is that in heaven, worship of God will be many-faceted, many expressions. And I think as you grow to understand that simple statement, all we'll do is worship God, you're going to come to say, yes, I love it. And I can't wait. You ready to study? We are in Revelation chapter 21. Uh, Today, I want to look just at two verses with you, and these are verses that at first glance, you're probably going to say, I'm not feeling much, but upon understanding and reflection, meditation, I think you're going to come to adore these verses. Here they are. Revelation 21, verse 25, on no day will its gates ever be shut. Let me pause. The gates its gates is the city of the New Jerusalem, the city we studied last week. We discovered that that immense city will have this huge wall, like ancient cities had walls around them. And this wall will have 12 gates. And it's those gates of that city in heaven that are being referred to in this verse. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. All right, let's talk. Let me start by highlighting the word gates. Ancient cultures immediately resonated with the excitement of gates. And we're like, what? Because we don't live with city walls and understand the dynamics of city gates. But in the ancient world, the city gates is where it was happening. 
It was the place of bustling activity. I had a chance of witnessing this in my visit to Jerusalem because the old city of Jerusalem still today is surrounded by the ancient city wall with these gates. And the activity at the city gates is mesmerizing. I'll tell you why. First of all, the city gates are like a bottleneck. Think about it. Everybody who wants to leave the city has to pass through the city gates. Anybody who wants to come into the city has to pass through those narrow gates. And so like a bottleneck, the city gates concentrate the population or the density of the people in that area. So if you're in business and looking for a place to set up your cart and sell your hats, no better place than the city gates. So sure enough, there is all kinds of commerce going on at the city gates. Food, you know, if you got a food cart, what better place than where all the people are at? And so the city gates is a place where the smell of glorious food fills the air. Socially, if you want to meet somebody, no better place than the city gates. That's where the tea and food is. Hey, I'll meet you by that gate. And so it's the social. Uh, street musicians, what better place to play your music than at the city gate? So everybody understood that the city gate is the place of bustling activity and life. Now, this verse is pointing to a very interesting difference between the city gates there and the city gates here. Let me highlight these first two lines here and point out it's saying of those gates, on no day will the gates ever be shut because there will be no night there. You see, city gates in this life They'd always close the gates at night. The walls are there for protection, and the most vulnerable time for a city to be attacked by enemies was at night. And so to protect their sleeping residents, they would close the gates at night. You know, at that moment when the gates were closed, just imagine it, everything changes. You know, all of a sudden, gates are closing. The people selling their wares would pack up their carts and move away. All the foods would be put away and taken away. The musicians packing up their instrument. The people socializing, heading home. The minute those gates shut, suddenly this area that was filled with activity is now still with none. And so what contrast is the Lord making here? The Lord is saying, as you imagine the bustling activity that you so enjoy, let me tell you what this earth is like compared to that earth. That earth, it will never stop. In this earth, the city gates are punctuated between activity and boredom, if you will. In that life, the activity will be more, not less. That's so important for those of you who fear of boredom. You know, the notion that heaven's going to be sitting around on white clouds, wearing your bathrobe, playing a harp, going, oh man, I'm just dying. No! Don't compare heaven to this life, assuming it will be less activity. Joyfully anticipate more, more meaningful, more exciting, more delightful, more satisfying activity provided by God. So that's our first observation. But we want to imagine this bustling city gates and now focus in on a specific crowd moving through the gates. Do you see that? That's in the second verse. It says here, the glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. It is the new Jerusalem. Brought into means it's passing through those city gates. Who's going through? 
the nations. And what are they bringing through? The glory and honor that belongs to them. They're like, okay, I'm trying to understand what I'm seeing, but I'm not fully getting it. And that's because we don't know what the ancients who this originally was given to clearly understood. Those people, when they saw this, they're like, oh, yeah, I know exactly what that is. Friends, what that is has been made even more clear to us from the University of Chicago. Yes, the great University of Chicago in our great city was given the unique opportunity to excavate. This is back in 1930s when we were in great relations with Iran. Iran, the country, invited the University of Chicago to conduct an excavation of an ancient palace in their southern part of the country. This palace is called Persepolis. This palace was built back when the Persian Empire was so dominant in uh, what is now Iran. This is back 500 B.C. This palace was built during the Old Testament era. This palace was built by Darius and Xerxes. You may know those names from Daniel and Ezra and Esther and Nehemiah, that period of the Old Testament. Uh, They built this palace. It was destroyed by Alexander the Great, the Greek, and then it got buried in the sands for centuries until Chicagoans, the University of Chicago, dug it up. And some of what they dug up, they actually brought to Chicago. I love the museum at the University of Chicago called the Oriental Institute. I've talked about it before. If you've been here a while, I'll probably talk about it again. Here's a picture I took. They've got a whole room dedicated to the palace called the Persepolis. Look at this massive bull's head that was in one of the palace halls. This thing is huge. I mean, it is like 10 feet tall, many tons of granite, just gorgeous. So this is one artifact here in Chicago. Let's let's go to a picture now of Persepolis itself. This is just a little glimpse of one corner of this massive palatial complex. If you were to go, which I don't recommend these days in Iran, but visitors would spend a whole day wandering through this massive. But I I show you this picture just to give you a, a glimpse of the grandeur of the door frames and the window frames. I mean, this palace was amazing. And as they dug deeper in the sand, they were surprised to find these base relief carvings of people. And friends, hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of these people carved into the sides of these buildings. Let's zoom in on one of these base relief carvings a little more. And I think you're beginning to see what's going on here. They discovered what they call a procession of tribute bearers. In an empire, vassal nations would send people, representatives, to bring gifts to the king of kings. Do you see that? And each unique people group would bring a unique gift that represented their country. It was amazing as the Chicago excavators did their work. They looked at the hats. They'd find a whole group, an envoy, that looked very similar. Same hats, same attire, same facial features, same facial hair. And they were able to identify 24 different countries represented at Persepolis on the walls there. Not only were they able to identify 24 different people groups, they then looked and they saw a correlation between the people and their gifts. It was the kind of stuff those nations were known for. You know, 
this nation, uh, what do they got? They got a horse that they're bringing as a gift, and it looks like an iPhone of some type, and <laughs> bowls, and vases, and it's interesting. Even today, countries still have their products that they're proud of. I, I was thinking about it, and I, I thought, you know what? Uh, Paris, France, you know, it's their fashion attire they're so proud of. And Switzerland, it might be their watches. And Japan, their cars. And Iran, today, Persian rugs are still something. They do better than anybody else. It, it dawned on me, if there was a Chicagoan engraved in this wall, and they would have a Lou Malnati's pizza, you know, that they were carrying to bring to the kings. Oh. Understanding this bringing of tribute, suddenly the verse that we just read is beginning to come into clarity. So let's go on to the verse again. And I want to highlight the word nations. Now we're beginning to understand the word nations. The word nations means ethnos. That's the Greek term that's translated. And ethnos means ethnicity. Unique culture group. And you say, in heaven? You know, just like there were 24 different people groups on the walls of Persepolis, you're saying in heaven there are going to be ethnicities? No, you may argue. In heaven there'll be no difference. We'll all be gloriously the same and equal and no more racism. Well, you're right about no more racism. Racism is sin and evil. God will eliminate that. But cultural distinctives are good and beautiful in the eyes of God and will represent life in heaven. You see, racism results when there's mistrust and hatred and feelings of superiority and mistreatment and fear between groups. But in heaven, those differences will be celebrated and mutually appreciated and there will be a unifying, obsessive love with the Lord and it'll all be beautiful. But friends, uniqueness is a part of heaven that's illuminated in this verse. I don't even get down to the personal level. You will be unique in heaven. Part of a unique community, but as a unique individual. You won't be like everybody else. You'll have a unique personality, unique giftedness. And it may even be, I don't know, I'm speculating now, that those same personality and giftedness that you have here will be supercharged in your resurrection body. Maybe. So there's this unique people groups coming into the city. Now we're beginning to understand here. Let's highlight glory and honor. What they are bringing, their glory and honor, their pride and joy, is the the products or the services that they offer like no one else. The expertise that they uniquely have. Isn't that interesting? Friends, in heaven, the various people groups will be known for making or doing certain things with God-given excellence. And in heaven, they will do those things so well and bring them to the Lord in the new Jerusalem. Now you're like, wait a minute, are you talking about work in heaven? I mean, making product, that's labor intensive. I thought heaven was one glorious retirement forever and ever and ever. And no, you're wrong there. There will be work in heaven. Now you react to that because work here is so messed up by sin and the fall. 
Uh, scripture was clear back in Genesis that labor here will be frustrating and hard and people will be annoying and it'll be so difficult. But, but in heaven, work will be perfected and you will be given a unique assignment by God. He'll pick your job. And your job in heaven will be so right for who you are and how you're gifted. It will demand your best and throwing yourself into doing that task with excellence will bring you satisfaction and joy. And you say, well, what jobs are there in heaven? Well, you guess it, it's probably there. I did a study of the the various careers either directly described or alluded to in the prophetic description of heaven found in scripture, all over scripture. And I provide you that list. Reigning. One of the things it talks a lot about is many will be given authority to lead. You know, the leaders among us are like, sweet. Reigning. Judging. Managing. Construction of houses is described. Transportation of goods. Metalworking. Winemaking. Fishing. There will be farmers and ranchers and decorators and cooks and musicians. Just a sampling of some of the jobs that will be in heaven. I mentioned musicians. Can I comment on that one for a moment? Because I have to admit that there is a disproportionate emphasis on the harp in heaven. Maybe that excites you. Me, not so much. But I did a study of this word harp, the the, the Greek word that's translated harp, and let me show you what I found. Kathara is the Greek term translated harp, which led to the Arabic term gitara, which led to the Spanish term guitara, which led to the English word guitar. And so the term followed this evolution, as did the instrument itself. The kithara that was back around the biblical time was a wood box resonant chamber with a hole in it with strings stretched over it, very much resembling our modern acoustic guitar. Isn't that interesting? And so the true descendant of this instrument referred to in Scripture is the guitar and not the harp. So I just want you to know that when you think of music in heaven, do not think of this. Sorry, dude. Uh, that ain't going to happen. You should rather think of this. Now, I am not saying <laughs> that Eddie Van Halen is going to heaven. I don't know. But if he trusts Jesus, I am saying he'll be ready to play the harp there. And that will be awesome. Friends, let me go uh, to the next scripture slide. And let's zoom in on this last phrase. We already learned that the nations are unique peoples who are uniquely qualified to produce goods and services at an excellence others can't do. And they have joy in that. But what do they do with the product of their labor? They bring it into the new Jerusalem and to the Lord himself. This is so important. In heaven, we work for God. In heaven, we will keenly understand that all of our labor every day is for the Lord. In fact, there'll be moments when we march into that city ourselves, bringing the fruit of our labor and saying, Lord, I did it for you. How meaningful will it make that labor? First of all, we're going to love it and enjoy it, and it'll demand the best of us, and we'll improve and grow at our craft. 
But we'll know every day, this is not about selfishness. This is not about me and what I get. This is about my love for God. It's a labor of love. It's for him. It could be said this way. Work will become worship in heaven. Every day as you work, your heart will be filled and you will be worshiping the Lord because you're doing it for him. Do you see worship expanding our understanding now? I would add, not only will our work be worship, our recreation will be worship. There will be, no, not all work in heaven. The scripture alludes to travel and gardening and fishing and various uh, music that will be just joy and hobby there. But it'll be for God. We'll realize that this recreational opportunity is a gift from God, and as we enjoy it, we'll be giving him thanks and praise for this good gift. Socializing, lots of partying and banquets in heaven. Some of you are like, sweet, that's my spiritual gift. Well, you are going to find that being worship as you enjoy this, this social opportunity and say, Lord, this is a gift from you, and I give you thanks. It's all worship in heaven. And friends, if we're going to do it so well there, might we practice it here? I admit in this life, you know, we still are messed up by sin and we're not going to get this worshiping God in every moment, 24-7 thing perfectly, but might we grow significantly in that art? I'm telling you, the more you learn to live each moment as a gift of obedience and worship to God, the more the ordinary becomes extraordinary, the more the secular becomes spiritual, the more tasks of boredom are infused with joy as it becomes a love thing for the Lord. I'll give you a a verse. This is found in the book of Colossians, chapter 3, verse 23. Paul says, whatever you do, Work at it with all of your heart as working for the Lord. Do you see that uh, tribute-bearing procession bringing the fruit of their labor, that which they did with all their heart, and bringing it to the Lord? That's what's going on here. And this is the way we're to live now, is recognizing that whatever we do, do it to the best of your God-given ability, and do it for him. I'll give you a little example of my effort to practice this. And this is kind of silly, so forgive me for a small, but sometimes a little silly and significant things can be significant in their practical workings out. So I I drive a lot. You know, we got a weird church with four campuses, and as a result, I got meetings at all four campuses, and I tend to be in the car quite a bit. These days, I've been driving for Jesus. You say, what are you talking about? I enjoy driving. I try to do it well. You've seen people drive poorly, right? Well, I try to drive well, being attentive and accomplishing it with efficiency and excellence. And as I drive these days, I've just been reflecting, Lord, am I doing your will right now? Is it your will that I go from this campus or this meeting or this store to this place? I think I'm operating in your will. Well, then if I'm obeying you here, let me obey you well as a gift of worship to you. That thought has been going through my mind increasingly when I'm in the car. When I got my family in the car, I'm thinking, Lord, it's my calling to transport them to our destination safely and well. May I do it with excellence in honor to you. And that little mental reflection of giving him worship in those moments has just infused meaning into the simple task of driving. 
And if that's true of driving, it's true of every moment in your life. Here's a little assignment. Try to figure out how every moment of every day can be worship to God. Lord, am I doing now what you'd want me to do? Well, then I'm obeying you. And may this obedience be received by you as worship. My wife this week, uh, she said to me, she's just being vulnerable. She goes, Jeff, I hate doing laundry. She goes, I am amazed at how much dirty clothes this family can generate. And I am so sick and tired of folding laundry. And I said, darling, you need my sermon. uh, One of the joys of being a pastor's wife is that you get to hear the sermon before, you know, like a preview of it. And so I, I preached to her. I said, darling, do not complain about the laundry. I said, if you understand, laundry can be worship if done for Jesus. It's an honor and a privilege. May you receive this sermon better than she did. That's all I'm saying. Let, let me show you our main verse again. Can we go to Revelation 21, 25, and 26? And now that we've gained a fuller understanding, imagine our future home. Can you see these glorious gates? Can you imagine the sounds of music as musicians play and the smells of, oh, that food, you just wait? Can you hear the laughter of people relating without sin, tainting and messing up friendship? Can you see the procession of workers who have labored with excellence, bringing their pride and joy into that city to present it as a gift of love to the God they adore? Friends, heaven is going to be incredible day after day, getting better and better as we grow and as our relationship with the Lord grows and as our relationship with each other grows. I can't wait to get there with you. And even as I say that, it dawns on me that not all of us will get there. I can't end this series on heaven without reminding us all that not everybody upon death goes to heaven. Only those who have solved the problem according to God's plan. And I have to remind you of the problem. There's something that messed everything up. We live in a train wreck of a situation. Back when God made humanity, he made us to live with him, for him as king and us as loving members of his family. But he gave us free will, and our forefathers used that free will to tell God, I don't need you. Get out. I'll do it on my own, thank you. I can find satisfaction and joy in this world being my own king. And that rebellion shattered the relationship with God we were made for. It busted everything. That's where the curse messed up this world, and we've been living in the ramifications of that ever since. It's the disaster we were born into, but into that disaster has come the rescuer. Jesus Christ is the Savior. He has come from heaven to our planet to save the day. Christ is God in human flesh, rescuing the rebels. He's come to this planet, and Jesus, through some miracle, had the guilt and sin of the world transferred to his shoulders. Jesus said, give me all of your shame and sin. 
And Jesus said, now I'm going to take your place in satisfying justice. Justice demanded that this rebellion be uh, given the death penalty. And Christ took that death penalty upon himself. He suffered the horrible execution of the cross in our place. He had done nothing wrong. He didn't deserve it. He did it for us. And suffering and satisfying justice on our behalf, God is able now to extend this unthinkable offer of reconciliation. Free! In a moment! The Lord says, now with justice served by the cross, God says, does anyone want to be reconciled to the king of the universe? Come! Now, I should mention that to be reconciled to the king of the universe is to bow the knee and recognizing him as king again. You're not going to do it perfectly, but your intent must be to submit to that king. But anyone who wants to get right with the king of kings, the king of love, that offer is being made available. Now, there are some who stubbornly refuse that offer till their dying day. And they don't get to heaven. They are given a destination called hell, which is really what they asked for, and that is a life without God. That's what hell is. At its core, it is the place God is not. And friends, my prayer is that that's none of us, but rather all of us would receive this great gift of reconciliation and know that this heaven we have studied is our eternal home. You can be that certain of it by saying yes to the offer God is making. And I want to close in prayer, providing a chance for each of us to say yes to that offer. Yes, in this prayer, you can look God in the eyes and say, I want right with you. I know I can't earn it. I can only receive it. And I want to receive it now. So let's bow our heads at all four campuses. The Lord is hearing the silent cries of your heart with crystal clarity. And I give word to the cry of so many hearts. We want to say yes, Lord. For uh, Lord, it just, this is like the, the most obvious and important thing in the world. Why would we not receive the gift of eternal life of heaven? of reconciliation with you. We can't believe, Jesus, what you did for us. And so we say yes. Take our sin and guilt and wash it away. Reconcile us to you. Let us call you Father and you call us son and daughter. Let us know we are citizens of heaven now, waiting with great joy for the arrival soon in that home you're preparing. But Lord, let it be clear we say yes. Take our lives. We want to be yours. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.